Hello, this is Pastor Don from the Atlantic Evangelical Free Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can check us out on the web at atlanticfreechurch.com. In the meantime, I hope the sermon you're about to hear draws you closer to the Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening, and God bless you. Before we get in, uh, good morning. Uh, before we get into the Word this morning, I wanted to lead us in a time of prayer. Um, as Kurt prayed before, I really appreciated that Kurt opened us with this. Uh, this is an unusual school year, uh, and school year starts in the Atlantic School District tomorrow. I believe probably most districts are lined up that way. A lot of homeschooling families are get going. Some of us have sent college students off. It's just that time of year, and uh, here we go, pandemic year two, and there's debates still in the news and just and then locally. So, so we just, a few of us were talking, we just wanted to take a time to, to consecrate the school year. I've done this a few other years, not every single year, but we thought it was really appropriate to do it this year. You might have seen a display out in the fellowship hall. Um, Pam and maybe some others helped her, I don't know, work together and put together just kind of a nice little set piece to remind us our kids are going back to school. So uh, we want to pray for them and for the teachers and everyone else too. So would you please join with me and let's commit to the Lord this, uh, this new school year that's about to start, whether it affects you or not. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we do want to lift up our, um, our, our local schools and our students, Lord, to you today. We, we thank you uh, for the gift of, of education. We thank you that you are a, a God of words and a God of, of knowledge, and it is a very um, godly thing to, to learn. And so we, we praise you for that, that gift. And we just want to lift it up to you. We, we do consecrate and set apart to you this school year. We pray for our little ones, uh, for our students, from the littlest ones all the way up to the, to the college students who have gone out. And we, we pray for them, that you would help them to, uh, to do well in their studies, to do their best, and to, um, to, to, to see you, Lord, even, in, uh, even when they're not studying maybe you know, Bible college or something, but even so, and even in just general revelation and the beauty of music and the power of math and all these different kind of things, really to, to be drawn to you. We would pray that for our students. Uh, we pray for the teachers, Lord, that you would give them energy and strength and uh, renew their strength for this new school year. Uh, we uh, pray for those who are homeschooling, Lord, for those families and, and mom and dad teachers and, and just those students that you would uh, empower them for their, their work this year as they're getting started. Maybe some of them already have. Uh, we just lift them up to you, Lord, and pray you'd glorify yourself in their educational endeavors. Uh, we do pray uh, for the, the districts in our region, and I, mean, I just want to pray particularly for the Atlantic School District, Lord, as they're dealing with uh, disruption in the middle school with the fire about a month ago and just how all the middle school classes have had to be scattered to different facilities, and that's just affected everybody. So we just pray you'd give them grace and um, help them as they're dealing with that. Um, to do it with good humor, and uh, we pray you'd provide all that's needed. If there are already still pieces coming together, we pray that it would all come together and you'd help them. Uh, we pray for those in leadership in, in our district and in the other districts, uh, principals and superintendents and boards of education and so on. And uh, finally, Lord, we would just ask your hand of protection to be upon them. Uh, there is still this, uh, you know, the whole thing with the pandemic going on, and, and there are other threats, Lord. And so we pray that your hand of protection would be upon our schools and upon our students and all those who are there. We commit this year to you. We consecrate it in, in faith, looking to Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.
please open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 9 through 13. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The word of the Lord. Nancy for reading. We are continuing in Zephaniah this morning. We are doing, that's what we're studying this month. If you're having a hard time finding Zephaniah, it's just a couple of pages in your Bible there. It's in the Old Testament. It's fourth back from Matthew. So go find Matthew and just turn enough pages through some short little books to help you find Zechariah. It's one of the later books in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, let's pray. Let's ask for God's help with this morning's passage. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and now that is manifest here in scriptures uh, as you have uh, have and continue to reveal yourself to us here in the words of the Bible. And so we would ask your help this morning, help us uh, as we look at a a book that's less familiar to, to all of us, I suspect. And so as we study this, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of every single one of our hearts would be pleasing to you. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a few years ago, my wife Laura and I went up to Minneapolis to uh, watch a Twins game. Uh, Actually, we treated ourselves to two Twins games. It was our anniversary, and so we decided to splurge, and it was a night game and then an afternoon game the next day. And and so we went up to Minneapolis to watch two Twins games. Uh, I do have a confession to make, though. Uh, We did not go to Minneapolis to watch the Twins. Uh, We went to watch the Red Sox. Uh, The Red Sox were in town playing the Twins. And uh, some of you know we are uh, Red Sox fans. We picked up that bad habit back in New England and uh, when we were in Connecticut for a bunch of years. And so when I saw on the schedule that the Red Sox were going to be in Minnesota on our anniversary, we just decided, well, that's a nice way to celebrate. So so we went up and and caught a couple of games. Now, let me ask you, have, have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to a game where you were cheering for the visiting team? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, it can be. I mean, you got your Red Sox hat on and your Jason Veritek jersey and you're, you're doing the vibe and you're enjoying rooting for your team. And, and then you kind of look around and you realize there's Twins fans everywhere. They're to the left, they're to the right. There's that family down in front of you with the eight-year-old who keeps kind of looking back at you like this. And, and there's the, the guys behind you with the beers and they're already halfway to, halfway to wherever and it's only the second inning and, and you're waiting for that beer to come on you, you know. It, 
It's just you're surrounded by, by Twins fans. Now, fortunately, it was Minneapolis, not New York. And so uh, the folks were pretty nice to us. They were mostly friendly to us. But uh, still, it's a strange experience. It, it really is. Because you, you know you're different. It's so obvious that you don't really belong there. When, when we cheered, they groaned. Right? And when we groaned, they cheered. I mean, you're, just, you, you're totally out of sync. You, you, it's so obvious that you're different when you're in that kind of a setting. That's kind of what it's like to be a Christian these days. Every week, it seems, it becomes increasingly clear that we are different from the rest of the crowd. It's, it's like we're cheering for the visitors in the home stadium. We're studying Zephaniah this month, and we're asking a question of this little book. It's just three chapters long, and we're asking it a question. And the question we're asking is, what's a believer to do? It's kind of the title I gave to the series. What's a believer to do? How should we live when we live in a, a, a world like this, a world that's filled with sin and rebellion and all that stuff we talked about, especially in the first week of this series? And so this morning, I want to take that question, what's a believer to do, and I want to apply it to this issue of being different. How do we live in a world where we are so obviously different because of our faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer we find in this morning's passage is that we should embrace it. We should embrace it. God wants us uh, to, to remain faithful. Embrace it. Remain faithful to him even when those around you are not. We're going to look at the first 13 verses of uh, chapter 3, as, so when we'll catch the rest of the book next week and finish it then. So we're, looking, we're focusing in on verses 1 through 13, and I want to do two things with this passage this morning. Uh, the first is that I want to establish for you or show you what we're going to call the remnant principle. And I'm not making this term up. A lot of uh, Bible scholars will talk about this, especially Old Testament scholars, the remnant principle. And the idea here is that the Bible teaches that in every generation, it's not just the last days sort of a thing, in every generation, the Lord sets apart for himself a people, a people who are faithful to him. And uh, I'm not going to show you that in the whole Bible. I'm just going to show it to you here in Zephaniah, because Zephaniah is one of those books where we see the remnant principle in action. And the point of the remnant principle is that that's who you want to be. That's who you want to be. If you care about your eternal destiny at all, you want to be part of the Lord's remnant. And so I want to establish that. And with that, I'll kind of give you an overview of this morning's passage and just show you the remnant principle. After we do that, I then want to take you through what these verses, especially verses 8 through 13, I want to show you what they tell us about the remnant what they say about us. Uh, and, and really what it says, and this will be probably two-thirds of our time, what it says is that the remnant is different. We are different. That's why we feel so different. We are different. If you're going to live faithfully to the Lord, you're going to stand out. You're going to be different. And we'll actually look at 10 ways. If you're an outline person and you looked at the bulletin outline this morning, I think I, I numbered it 1 through 10, and we'll have to move relatively quickly through them. But uh, we're going to talk about 10 ways that God's people, his faithful people, the remnant, 10 ways we live different. So let's, uh, let's take a look. Let's get into the text and, and talk about these things. So we'll start by just asking the question, who are they? Who are the remnant? Right? If we're going to talk about this principle, let's establish who we're talking about. And the answer is that the remnant are the people who actually live for God. 
You say, how, how do I know who the remnant are? Well, it's those who are actually doing it. They don't just claim to belong to the Lord, you know, kind of check the Christian box on the every 10-year census. It's, it's, it's bigger than that. It's that they actually live. They actually live for the, God, for the Lord. They are faithful to Him. And that's not to say they're perfect. We're making no claims of perfection here. Uh, no one is perfect but God. But, but the idea is that what, is what Jesus talked about when He talked about fruit. Right? You'll know them by their fruit, Jesus said. And so the idea is that you can, you can look at a person's life, you can look at your own life, and you can say, yeah, I belong to him. That, that person, I belong to him. And, and so that's what we... we let, me, let me show you that in verses 1 through 13. So chapter 3 begins with a pronouncement of woe. Right? So we're actually still in judgment mode. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, chapter 2, it's a pretty heavy chapter. And uh, that heaviness continues into chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Are, uh, they're a, formally, it's called a woe. It's a pronouncement of judgment uh, on a rebellious city. It's a pronouncement of judgment on a rebellious city. Uh, but the author does something a little interesting here. If you look at this book from a literary perspective, which is an important way to look at Scripture because it's literature as well, and if you look at what the author's doing here, he actually tricks us a little bit. The Holy Spirit working through Zephaniah tricks us a little bit. And what I mean is that he doesn't tell us who he's talking about. Not right away. He doesn't tell us who he's talking about in verses 1 through 4. So if I can remind you of chapter 2, and this is where it's helpful to have your, your Bible. If you look back at chapter 2, you'll remember that we finished with judgment on Nineveh. And so God kind of saved the worst for last when he was talking about his judgment of the nations. And in verses 13, 14, and 15, he pronounces judgment on the empire of Assyria and especially her capital city, which was Nineveh. And he says, I will destroy Nineveh. And so verse 15, uh, this is the exultant city. We're talking about Nineveh at the, in that last verse of chapter 2. She lived securely. She said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. Such a prideful statement. What a desolation she has become, God says. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her, Nineveh, hisses and shakes his fist. That's the last verse of chapter 2. Now, your Bible probably has a heading at the start of chapter 3. Mine does. And at the start of chapter 3, it says, Judgment on Jerusalem. Right? It's right there. And so, as a reader, I know, okay, oh, we're going to switch. We're going to switch to Jerusalem now. But you need to remember, that's not in the Hebrew text. When, when Zephaniah wrote this, he just wrote the whole thing on a scroll. There were no chapter breaks. There were no helpful headings. Uh, it just flows. Chapter 3 flows right out of chapter 2. And so a reader, a Jewish reader or a Jewish listener hearing this prophecy for the first time is entirely thinking we're still talking about Nineveh. There's nothing to tell you we're not still talking about Nineveh. And, and so you would, you would listen to it that way. But then, it, this is what I mean by the, the trick. Please put that in quotes. God doesn't trick us. But the text kind of invites us to think we're talking about one nation, one city, when in fact he's talking about someone else. So let me show you what I mean. So, so we talk about Nineveh. Everyone passes by Nineveh and shakes their fist at her. Woe to her! Well, clearly we're still talking about Nineveh. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. You bet. Nineveh oppressed all of her neighbors. Uh, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. Yep, that's right. She doesn't trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her, her God. Well, that's strange. God's not the God of Nineveh. Okay, whatever. Uh, her officials within her, verse 3, are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. Yep, they sure are. They leave nothing till the morning. That's, uh, you're a Jewish person. You're like, yeah, I hate Nineveh. Uh, yeah, they've got it coming. They deserve it. Verse 4, her prophets are fickle. 
Well, what? Her prophets? Nineveh doesn't have prophets. Uh, that their treacherous men, her priests, profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. We're not talking about Nineveh anymore. And the reader kind of realizes this about halfway through the judgment. We're not talking about Nineveh. We're talking about Jerusalem. Now God has switched. Now he's talking about his own people. Turns out not all of God's people are faithful people. And that's why this pronouncement of judgment is being made now upon Jerusalem. Some of God's people, right? What Paul says in Galatians, not all Israel is Israel. That's, it's, that, it's this principle here. Uh, there are people in Judah, and, and unfortunately it seems to be the majority, people in Jerusalem, her capital, who are rebellious and defiled and, and sinful. Because of their rebellion, they're defiled and they're sinful against the Lord. And so you have this idea in verse four, 1 through 4 that sometimes even God's in name people aren't faithful to him. That's what you have in verses 1 through 4, Jerusalem's rebellion. Verse 5 sets that over against uh, the Lord. So the Lord is righteous. So basically, I see verse 5 as saying, this isn't God's fault. It's not God's fault. Verse 5 says, uh, he's gracious. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. Uh, but the unjust knows no shame. And so that's verse 5. Uh, it, it reminds me of Lamentations chapter 3. His, mer- his mercies are new every morning. That's kind of what verse 5 is saying. Every morning he shows forth his justice. He is faithful even when his people aren't. That's verse 5. The Lord is faithful even when his people aren't. And because he's faithful, and they aren't, that's the last part of verse 5. The unjust knows no shame. The unjust within Jerusalem, they were not ashamed of their sin. They should have been, but they weren't. And so, uh, and so he, that, that's set off against. He is gracious, but they're, he's just, but they're still unjust. And so because of his graciousness, he warns them. And that's what you have described in verses 6 and 7. Um, I'm going to read them in just a moment, but to summarize verses 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7 is God saying, I warned you. I gave you every opportunity to turn back to me and to turn away from your sin, and, and you didn't do it. And so I, I, I warned you. I warned you to turn back to me. And what he's talking about is the judgment of the surrounding nations. And so it reminds us of chapter 2. It's the judgment of the surrounding nations in history. So verse 6, he says, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. So he's describing how he has judged in history, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. In history, he's judged uh, other nations around Judah at this point. And then look at verse 7. He said, I said, surely you will fear me. You'll, you'll look at what I've done to, to your enemies in, in judging them. Surely you'll fear me and you'll accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I've appointed against you. I, what he's saying is, I would have mercy on you if you'd responded to my warning and, and come back to me. That's, that's what he's saying there. But they didn't listen. The, those rebellious people in Judah and Jerusalem didn't listen. They didn't take the opportunities to repent. And so you have the the last part there at the end of verse 7. But all the more, all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. God kept reaching out to them, reaching out to them, offering them grace, and they kept not wanting it, not seeing the warnings, not taking heed. And so they leave him no choice. They leave him no choice but to judge. And that's verse 8. So if you're just kind of following the flow of this text here, therefore... 
So now God's going to answer that rebellion. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. It's this picture of God as like a lion pouncing on a gazelle uh, or whatever animal. And for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation. Reminds us of chapter 2. All my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. And that reminds us of the first two verses of the book, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And so, again, we talked about this the first two weeks. Uh, The Bible teaches that God judges the whole world. Right? Every person, every nation answers to him, and they will be judged. And that's where verse 8 gets us to. However, and now we, now we are going to make the switch to the good stuff in Zephaniah. However, uh, there is one group of people who escape everything I just described to you. There's one group of people who escape God's judgment, and they are called the remnant. The people of God who actually live for God will not be judged by God. They will escape judgment because as we would look at it from the New Testament, Jesus has taken that judgment for us. Now we read about these people. We read about them in Zephaniah. And actually they're, they're not just in today's text, they're, they're scattered throughout the book. The first time we met the remnant was back in chapter two. It was the first week, it was week one. Uh, chapter two, verse three. Remember that verse? It says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. That was the answer. So this chapter one's all about judgment, and then you get this call to repentance, and God says, seek the Lord, you humble of the land. Uh, Zephaniah does not use the term remnant in that verse, but that's who he's talking about. It, he's talking about the, the humble of the land are the remnant. Uh, and I'm confident of that because he does use the term remnant later in chapter two. It's just a few verses later, and he actually uses it twice. So in verse seven, he talks about the remnant the remnant of the house of Judah. And in context, the remnant of the house of Judah are the people who answered the call to repentance in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2, the humble of the land. The humble of the land are the remnant of Judah in this Old Testament context. And then you meet them again in verse 9. He calls them the remnant of my people, the remaining ones. That word remnant means the ones who remain, the remaining ones, uh, the remnant of my people. Uh, Both of those verses, if we took time to look at them in context, they're both talking about the blessings God gives to those who faithfully serve him. They, They are obedient to his commands. They follow him. They serve him. They turn from their sins. They repent when they fall. That's who the remnant are in those verses. Uh, They're also in today's passage, and they actually have a couple of different names, four different names in today's passage. Uh, Verse 9 calls them the peoples. I will, I'll show you this in a couple of minutes, but when verse 9 talks about the peoples, it's not talking about all of humanity. I think we've switched now to the subset of the remnant. So it's the peoples in verse 9. He calls them my worshipers in verse 10. Verse 12, God says he's going to leave a humble people. I'm going to leave. They're going to remain. It's the active form of the verb. I'm going to leave a people humble and lowly. And then verse 13, he talks about those who are left. One translation says, those who remain, those who remain, those who are left, the remnant. That's, those are all different names for this group we're talking about today. Uh, people who live for the Lord. They live for the Lord. Everyone else around them is, is giving in to idolatry and immorality and violence and everything else. Meanwhile, the remnant remain faithful. 
That's who you want to be. That's who you, it's one of the big messages of Zephaniah and why I'm spending so much time on it this week because it's actually one of the themes. It's one of the big messages of this book. When you live in rebellious times like Zephaniah lived in or like you and I live in, when you live in times like that, make sure you are part of his remnant. Make sure that you are faithful to the Lord. Yeah, the, the world is filled with sin. Right? We, we all know that. And, and sometimes it does feel like we're cheering for the wrong team. Have you ever had that experience? I mean, you just, you, you scratch your head. You know, again, it's like being in the stadium and, and everyone around you is cheering and you're groaning. You know, and they're all like, yay, gay marriage. Yay, gender fluidity. Yay, pride month. Yay, polyamory. They're all going, yay, this is great. And we're all like, oh my goodness. What is going on? It's madness. And we ask ourselves, what do you do, right? When you look around and you see all of this happening, you say, How, what, are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do? Here's what you do. You remain faithful. That's what the Old Testament says. That's what Zephaniah says. You keep living for Jesus. Even if nobody else around you does, you keep living for Jesus. Now let's talk, with that, talk about what that looks like. And actually, I think the rest of the book is about that. We'll kind of come back to it next week from a different angle. But it's certainly what the rest of our passage is about. Uh, in verses 8 through 13, uh, I want to kind of sort of fly through those verses, but not too quick. Uh, I want to go through those verses, and I want to show you 10 ways we live different. Right? So, so that's what we're going to look at now for the rest of our time. 10 ways the remnant actually does live different from the rest of the world. And uh, if you can bear with my sports metaphor, you can kind of think of it like, this is the visitor's jersey, right? These 10 things I'm going to list for you here. This is the visitor's jersey in the, in the you know, the enemy stadium or the, the home stadium. Because, I mean, what I mean is this is what makes you stand out, right? If you go to a Cubs game and you wear a Cardinals jersey, you're going to stand out. This, that's what this is. This is the, the jersey that makes you stand out. These are the things that look so different about us. And, and yeah, they are uncomfortable sometimes, you know, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but, but it's worth it. Whether it's uncomfortable or not, it's worth it because it's right. That, that's the idea here. So, so here we go. Uh, 10 ways God's faithful people live differently from the rest of the world, from Zephaniah 8 through, through 13. Number one, the remnant are purified. We are purified. And that's actually where verse 9 begins. We'll go back to 8 in a second. Uh, but verse 9, uh, God says, For at that time, which is a reference to uh, his judgment. At that time is this reference. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Um, it's, it's the ultimate day of judgment, but it's also God's judgment in history. It's, it's his action. It's kind of his, his acting. So at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. I will change the speech of the peoples, God says, to a pure speech. God did a miracle when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. He did a miracle in your life. And actually, he did a whole bunch of miracles. But one of the miracles he did was that he gave you a new heart. He gave you a new heart. You were truly born again. You were literally, spiritually born again. Uh, Ezekiel talks about it. One of my, uh, my favorite verses on this. Uh, God says through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. Right, it's Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. God did uh, uh, spiritual heart surgery on every single one of us when we gave our, our lives to Jesus. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And it doesn't use the word heart, does it? But that I'm, I'm certain is what verse 9 is talking about. Um, verse 1 talked about people who were defiled by their sin. But now we read about people who are not defiled anymore. 
Now they're purified. Do you see the, the contrast between those two words? Sin, sinful rebellion defiles, but repentance leads to purification. And so there's this purification, and it comes out in speech. And so he talks about, I will purify their speech. But you can't have, it's a biblical principle, you can't have pure speech unless you have a pure heart. Jesus said it, right? Matthew 12, 34. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Right, we can fake it a little bit, but give it some time. Right? Spend five minutes with me, you'll, I, I can probably fake it pretty good. But give, spend, let's spend a couple hours together. Whatever impurity is in here, you're going to see. And so when he talks about um, purifying the speech, what he's saying is uh, he's purifying our hearts. And so that's, I think, what verse 9 has, how that should be understood. Jesus purifies us from our sin when we put our faith in him. And I start with this one because that's the foundation for everything else. That's the foundation right there for why the remnant live differently from the rest of the world. Uh, we are members of a new race of human beings whose sin has been washed away. You might remember if you were here last fall, we talked about that in Ephesians when we did Ephesians 1 through 3 in the fall last year. One of the big things we learned in Ephesians was that God is making unto himself a new people from every tribe and every color and every ethnicity and all the rest of it. He's making one new nation that is all centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and born again and regenerated in him. Uh, that, that's this idea here. That's who this people is that he mentions in verse 9. And so the, the remnant live different because the remnant are different, right? We, we are purified on the inside. So that's number one. Number two, uh, the remnant wait for the Lord. We wait for the Lord. And this actually goes back to verse eight. Here's why I go back and catch verse eight. Verse eight, we talked about it a minute ago. Uh, verse eight says that God will judge sin, right? God is, is righteous. He is just. And so he judges sin, and we talked about that two weeks ago. If you want to dig into that more, look at the sermon I preached on August 8th, and we kind of drilled down on, on how important that is that he does. And so God um, judges sin, but notice what he says to his remnant, because I think verse 8 switches, and he, he actually begins to address the remnant. And look what he says to the remnant. He says, wait, therefore wait for me declares the Lord. Now, again, that's one of those, as you're reading through, you're not entirely sure who he's addressing. It could be that he's addressing the rebellious nations. You're almost like, you wait till I get there. You know, it's almost kind of, it could be that, but I don't think it's that. Uh, and the main reason I don't think it's that is that every other time you read that kind of phrase, wait for the Lord, it's positive. I could show you examples from the Psalms and other prophecies where waiting for the Lord, when God says, wait, when he uses the command form and says, wait for me, uh, that's something he, he wants his people to do. And so verse 8, he's talking to his people, and he says, you wait. You wait for my judgment, which makes us different, right? It fundamentally uh, recalibrates how we approach the world around us. We think of the injustices and the sin and, and all the rest of it. Uh, we are different because we trust that the Lord will right the wrongs. And that, that does not mean there's not a proper role of government. There's absolutely, I mean, you could read Romans 12 and 13 and read about the proper role of government. We're not saying that, uh, we're, not saying that we're passive. There is absolutely a proper role for churches and for individual Christians and for Christian charities to get out there and, and promote good and, and um, stand against evil. We'll actually get to that in a few minutes. Uh, so, so it's not that we just become passive, kind of a, oh, well, what are you going to do? That's not the idea. But what is the idea? What you get from verse 8 is that fundamentally, 
we understand that justice is in God's hands, not ours. Justice is something that God does, not us. It's, it's in his hands, not ours, which makes us different. We don't throw bricks through windows. We don't storm government buildings. We don't rage and insult and, and infuriate on social media, not intentionally anyway. We, do, we don't do these things because the world, we don't do these things that the world does. Those are worldly methods for trying to, to, to fight what they see as injustice. Those are worldly methods. We don't do that. What did Jesus tell us to do? Or what is Paul, Paul echoing Jesus? Romans 12, 21, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. That's this. That's this right here. Only someone who is waiting for the Lord to carry out judgment can do what Romans 12, 21 says. Right? Overcome, overcome evil with good. Right? You Christians understand we don't overcome evil with bricks through windows. We overcome evil by being faithful to Jesus Christ and doing what he tells us to do. Number three, the remnants serve the Lord. It's a fundamental shift in how we view the world. The remnants serve the Lord. Uh, this is back in uh, verse 9 now. I'll read all of verse 9. Uh, verse 9 says, uh, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him. Serve him. I want to zoom in on that part. Serve him with one accord or with one purpose. This is that idea of accord. We're, we're all serving the Lord with one purpose. God's faithful people serve him. They serve the Lord. We live, and really all that means is live for him. Our lives are lived for him. Uh, Rick Warren said it so well in the opening words of Purpose Driven Life. And I don't care if you loved the book or hated it or somewhere in between. Uh, the opening sentence of that book was pure gold. Do you remember how he started that book? It's not about you. Opening words of that book. It's not about you. It's about the Lord and serving him. The remnant absolutely understand and believe that. We believe that our lives, our purpose is to, be, is to be lived for the purposes of God. Our lives are meant to be lived for the purposes of God. And that permeates how we approach everything, and it makes us different. Right? So if you're a farmer, you farm for the Lord. If you're a teacher, you teach for the Lord. If you're a student, you study for the Lord. If, if you're an administrator, you administrate for the Lord. Right? And, and on and on and on we could go. We, we don't live for ourselves. We don't serve ourselves. We serve the Lord. It's a fundamental shift that makes us very different. Number four, uh, the remnant worship the Lord. So we serve the Lord. We also worship the Lord. And uh, that's verse 10. Verse 10 makes us think about worship. It says, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Uh, let's talk about Cush for a moment. You, you might remember, again, if you caught the sermon two weeks ago, um, when we looked at chapter 2, we talked about a whole bunch of places. There were a whole bunch of place names, and the, I'm not going to put the map up again, but I, I'll remind you that all of those places we read about in chapter 2 are in that general Middle Eastern part of the world where Zephaniah was ministering and where Israel is. And I told you, let's talk about Cush. Cush was the empire to the south of Egypt. So if you can picture in your mind's eye, perhaps a map of the Middle East where Egypt is, Cush was to the south. And usually we associate it with Ethiopia, modern Ethiopia, although it was a little bigger. Why Cush here in verse 10? Why does he bring Cush up again? Why not the other ones? Well, the reason he talks about Cush is that Cush was the farthest one away. 
And so that's what you have there. It's the idea of, in its context, in the context of Zephaniah, the people he's prophesying to is the Lord speaking through him, Cush is the furthest reaches of the world. I mean, they knew the world was bigger than that. I'm not saying they were ignorant, but, but of the places they would think about, it's the furthest away. And so there's actually a little bit of a Great Commission thing. There's like a prefiguring of the Great Commission here. People are going to come from the furthest away places. The remnant's going to be made up of people from the furthest away places. And notice what they do. Notice what these people coming from the furthest places do. They worship. They're coming to worship the Lord. And so he says they bring their offerings. He calls them my worshipers. Then he says they bring their offerings. In the Old Testament context, that's going to mean bringing physical offerings for the temple. So that's, that's that context. But in a New Testament context, Jesus, now we worship in spirit and in truth. And so you kind of make the translation here, and we're talking about, well, yes, offerings. You know, many of us brought offerings today, uh, but it's also offerings of praise and offerings of prayer and offerings of devotion. And even, the, you know, doing me the honor of paying attention to a 30-minute sermon is, is an offering. It's, a, it's an aspect of worship, right? It's, it's, it's one of the ways we worship. And all of that makes us different. It's very different from how the rest of the world lives, that we would turn our attention to God and we would declare his ultimateness, that we would declare he is great. Uh, The world worships idols, all sorts of idols. John Calvin said it, the human heart is an idol factory. We just generate, we just make idols. And so in the ancient days and in some places still today, it's idols of stone and idols of wood and idols of metal. Uh, But you don't need a little statue sitting on the mantelpiece. We have idols of power, idols of pleasure, idols of self, the self-aggrandizement, idols of money. That's a big one through every culture. Uh, That's how the world approaches worship, but God's faithful remnant worships the Lord. We worship the Lord our God, and that's another way that we're just different. We're just different from how the rest of the world lives. Number five, the remnant are free from shame. Free from shame. You get that in verse 11. First half of verse 11, God says, On that day, again, the day of his acting, uh, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. There's kind of a double there because he's also looking ahead to judgment day. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. You remember verse 5? Verse 5, the end of verse 5, talked about how the rebellious people who would not turn from their sin, what did it say? It said they knew no shame. And the idea was they should have known shame, but they didn't. But they, that, that's how hardened their hearts were against, uh, against God uh, as far as that goes. They were not ashamed of the shameful things they did. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. And so ironically, they were filled with shame. They, they, they may or may not have felt like it. And if you think about people today, some of them really do live with an intense sense of shame. And they try to medicate that with drugs and alcohol and sexual promiscuity. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways people try to cover up shame. But what, whether they feel it or not, the point is they are ashamed. They are ashamed before God. On that day, when judgment day comes, they will stand before God and they will be still caught up in their shame. But the remnant won't. That's the shift you get in verse 11. And he comes back to that idea, uh, you shall not be put to shame. God's enemies will be put to shame, but you, the remnant, those who are faithful, you will not be put to shame because of those deeds you did. It's not saying we weren't sinners. We were sinners, right? We, we, we had uh, shameful deeds by which we rebelled against him, but we are not put to shame because of them. Why? Because Jesus was put to shame on our behalf. 
Zephaniah is not going to talk about that, but we understand that from the New Testament. Uh, Jesus has removed our shame. And so now, what, is, what does the Bible say? Now we can approach the throne of grace boldly and, and with gladness. We, when judgment day comes, you will not hang your head in shame before your God. You won't. You will, you'll, you'll hold your head up with probably joy and worship and adoration and all kinds of other stuff, but it won't be shame because your shame has been removed. And so it's removed for eternity, and that affects how we live now, too. We don't live with that burden of shame. We don't have to. Number six, uh, the remnant are humble. That we're humble. And that also makes us different. That makes us different. We, we read about this humility in uh, verse... It's next, basically. Uh, middle of verse 11 into the first part of 12. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst, is that remain idea, there will remain in, among you a people humble and lowly. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once wrote, if I had one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. The more I see of existence, the longer I live, Chesterton was saying, uh, the more I am convinced of the reality of the old religious thesis that all evil began with some attempt at superiority. All evil began with pride. Think of what the Bible teaches about the fall of Lucifer. It begins with pride. Or as uh, Proverbs 16 says, 16:18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit, humble. Better to be humble and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. The world is filled with pride. It's filled with proud, arrogant, self-aggrandizing, self-reliant people but the remnant are called to be different. God's people are called to be humble. That makes us different. Number seven, the remnant also trust daily. We trust daily in the Lord. And that flows right out of the humility. I, I, wanted, number I wanted 10 because 10 is such a good number, but uh, I could have combined these two. They are humble, therefore they trust daily in the Lord. And that's what you get in the, the second half of verse 12. He says, um, they shall seek refuge. I'll read the whole verse. But I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They, who? The people humble and lowly, uh, will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And actually, we've already had this idea of trusting in the Lord back in verse 9. I skipped it before on purpose. Uh, but remember that pure speech? God's going to purify us on the inside so that, middle of verse 9, all of them, my remnant, all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. It's this idea of calling upon the name, taking refuge in the name. It's, both of them are connected together by that, that repetition of, of the name. And so what these are both are, calling on the name of the Lord, seeking refuge in the name of the Lord, they're both ways to describe trust. What do you trust in? When things get tough, when you feel nervous, when you're tempted to be anxious, where do you run to? Where, what are you going to trust in? We trust in the Lord. And that makes us different. The world takes refuge in their bank accounts or in their portfolios, if they've got enough for that. Uh, the world calls upon their accomplishments and their diplomas and their degrees. The, the world trusts in their, their selves, right? Their ability to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps or maybe pull themselves up by somebody else's bootstraps these days. But, but the point is, the people of the world trust in everything but, everything but the Lord. That, that's how the world operates. 
God's faithful people, the remnant, the remnant lives differently. The remnant calls upon the name of the Lord our God, and we take refuge in him. Number eight, we're almost there. Number eight, uh, the remnant promote justice. It's an important one. We've got to talk about this one. Uh, it's yet another way we look different. We don't just talk about justice. We do justice. That makes the remnant different. It's in verse 13. It's just one little sentence. They shall do no injustice. Do you see that there in verse 13? The remnant, those who remain, shall do no injustice. Uh, to state that in the positive, they do justice. If you're doing no injustice, then you're doing justice. You're doing what is, what is just, like it talks about in Micah 6, 8. Now, we do not have time to lay out a biblical theology of justice. We could, uh, we could do a 10-week series on that, probably. Uh, kind of what does it mean to talk about justice in a biblical sense. But let me just say this for this morning. God is the one who defines justice. God's the one who defines it, not the world. The world doesn't kind of get to see what's popular now. That's the thing we want now because it's popular. Therefore, now we're going to promote that and call it justice. That's, that's, that doesn't, that's not how it works. God is ultimately righteous. God is fully just. And so God, in his word, tells us what is and is not just. God gets to define that. Which means those of us who stand on the word are in the very best place to promote justice. No one is in a better spot. There's no, you know, Washington agency or whatever, or, you know, campus group. Nobody's in a position to promote justice better than a devout, sincere follower of Jesus Christ, a member of the remnant. So, so don't shrink back from that word, Amen. right? I, I, and I do know that it's, it's abused in some circles these days, but don't give up on justice, believer, just because it's abused in some circles. On the contrary, we should run toward justice, we really should, because it's all over the place in our book. It's all over the place in God's word. Defend the weak, help the oppressed, lift up the poor, tear down the barriers between races, expose immorality. Not celebrate it, expose it. That's a justice issue. Stand against violence, value human life in every form that it takes. That's true justice. And, and, and that's not an exhaustive list. We could talk about a lot more. But the point is, the remnant do that. The remnant do that. We promote the Lord's justice. We promote justice his way. Number nine, the remnant are honest. Very kind of, you know, that, that number, number eight is kind of big picture. Number nine is just kind of right here, right now in our every single day lives. Uh, we're just honest. Verse 13 says that. Uh, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. God's faithful people are, are honest people. Uh, we don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't stretch the truth so that it, be, it, you know, we don't stretch the truth when it makes our argument sound a little better on Facebook, you know, kind of stretch it a little bit. Uh, we don't do that. We, we tell the truth even when it hurts. Kind of like Psalm 15 says, uh, the, the man or the woman of God keeps his oath even when it hurts. We, we keep, we tell the truth even when it's, when it's inconvenient. And the world doesn't live that way. You don't need me to tell you that, but our culture is saturated with deception. You see it all over the place. You see it in, uh, and I don't mean to paint with the broadest stroke here, but in many of our political settings, many times advertising, many times uh, cultural things, there's just lots and lots of, of, of fudging and stretching and playing with the truth and manipulating, and you've got your facts and I've got my facts, and, and God's people are different. 
the faithful remnant lives differently. We are called to be a truthful people in a a world that is many times an untruthful world. Finally, number 10, we'll end with this. Uh, The remnant live in peace. We live in peace. And I I like the way this one ends because it's kind of launches into next week, which is really some of the most august, beautiful words in the Old Testament. Uh, But but we ended, we, we live in peace. We live in peace with our God. Uh, it's the middle of verse 13, and it's, a, it's an image. It's a metaphor. Uh, it says, For they, the remnant, we're still talking about the remnant, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Uh, Zephaniah is borrowing a metaphor here. That, that picture of grazing obviously evokes sheep and livestock to us. And so he's borrowing, I think, from the Psalms most immediately. I mean, that's really what you think of first. Psalm 100, uh, we know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. We are the sheep of his pasture. Or Psalm 23, even more famously, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He gives me peace. Zephaniah doesn't know it, or probably doesn't know it anyway, but he's also looking ahead. He's foreshadowing something Jesus will say. John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. Where is this peace found? It's found in Jesus. I know my own, he says, and my own know me. Combine that with Matthew 11, 11, 28. Come to me, Jesus the good shepherd said, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, will give you rest. And so that's something else the remnant has, and it's a way we're different. We live differently from the world. We have peace. This is how Jesus can say to us in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Uh, you know, trust, do not be anxious. That was Philippians 4. But he tells us in both places not to be anxious. And it's not because our circumstances are different. Right? It's, it's because they're not. We have the same circumstances. Right? We all live on the same planet, remnant, rebellious, we all live on the same planet. We're all living through the same pandemic. We're all paying the same rising prices. We're all watching the same ugliness in Afghanistan. The difference, the difference is that we trust in the great shepherd of our souls. We trust in him. The Lord is our shepherd. He protects us. He's our shelter. He's our strong tower. And so we can lie down in peace. That final half of the verse, we lie down in peace and no one can make us afraid. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, it is not easy being different. Uh, not always, anyway. Sometimes we relish it, but uh, sometimes it's just hard. But it's worth it. You are worth it, Lord. And so uh, we just thank you today. Thank you for calling us to yourself. It really is such a privilege to be your people, and we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, if there are any here who, who haven't made that step, who haven't entered into that blessed status of being among the remnant, those who have been purified. I would pray that you'd lead them to yourself, Lord, because we need this. This is, this is, it's the best way to live, but really, ultimately, it's the only way to live. And so we pray that you'd be working that in all of us. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us be faithful, help us to live this way we've talked about today, not so that we can be saved. We're saved because of Jesus, but because we're saved. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.